Snatter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailer Snatter, just talking to teachers. Okay, so hello, Omar, and welcome back to Nailer's Natter. How are you, Phil? Let's Very good, thank you. Yeah, we're just talking off air, weren't we? We're just saying we've reached the point of the holidays where neither of us know what day it is. No, same, same. Honestly, I mean, I think the alarm went off yesterday. Phil Naylor, 11 a.m. tomorrow. <laughs> okay, right. So that means I've got to wake up early, prepare my answers and all that kind of thing. But yeah, no, I didn't know what day it was either. Excellent. Well, we're very grateful that you have done that. So we're just going to do an ease you in gently with a gentle introduction. So obviously listeners will be aware of you, obviously be aware of your work and be aware of your previous podcast with us. Mm-hmm. So the first question is, what have you been up to since last we spoke about the unofficial teacher's manual? Oh, man. So been in the middle of a pandemic, <laughs> watching Tiger King, you know, the way a lot of people did. I also, um, so TikTok came out around about that time as well, as you know. Um, so I got hooked on these shuffle tutorials. I was like, oh, I can do this. I can do this. And it just became a thing because the gyms were closed um, and I needed something other than running because normally it'd be boxing and running or and a bit of weight training too. Um, but I needed something else. I was like, you know what? I remember dancing because I learned that shuffle of, of, a few years ago that went viral. I was like, all these tutorials, I'm just going to develop it further. And, I, and that was so much fun, you know, just doing that through, through this whole time. Um, and then obviously I actually, in just before lockdown, I had this little, um, this little bump on my abdomen. <laughs> You're going to love this. Every time I press it in, it was like a button. I was pressing it, it was like, bloop, 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 bloop. And I was like, oh, I wonder what this is. So I went to the doctor and he was like, you've got a hernia, you need surgery. I was like, really? Okay. And then I all went forward through with the surgery. The day before the surgery, Bloomsbury tweeted me um, saying, we really love your books. Would you be interested in writing a book for us? Do you have an idea for a book? Um, we'd be interested in you writing for us. And I was like, I'm in hospital now, <laughs> but I'll get back to you again. Yes, I do have an idea. And they were like, okay, fill out this proposal as soon as you're able to do so. Thank you so much. And then here we are about 18 months later. So, Absolutely. Yeah, uh, the teaching for realists. Well, we are. And that's going to be the focus of today's conversation. So for listeners, uh, the book is Teaching for Realists, Making the Education System Work for You and Your Pupils. Uh, And as Omar said there, it is a Bloomsbury book. So we're going to get into the book. Before we do that, I love the introduction part of it because you've actually been, as you always are, you know, extremely honest. And you've put comments in there about who this book is for or what this book is for and why it was written and a little bit about what it's not. So do you mind filling listeners in with that for us, Omar, please? Oh, brilliant. Yeah, sure. Um, So so the, the book itself is about the, edu- the issues within the education system and how to better manage them, work around them, cope with them, basically make them work or overcome them, make them work for you, the teacher, and for the students. So what I'm referring to is things like, for example, um, if we say we could, an example would be, say, the curriculum. Okay, which is what we're going to talk about later anyway. So there are issues with the curriculum, which a lot of teachers seem to complain about almost. Um, curriculum being too narrow. There's issues with the, with the way behavior policies work at school. There's issues with the way um, rewards are issued at school. You know, so it's, it's about overcoming and dealing with those. Ofsted would be another one. And the purpose of it is, 
hang on a second. I'm just sipping my coffee there too at the same time. Because a lot of new teachers, when they enter the profession, they're not aware of a lot of these issues. They, they don't know the obstacles which they're going to come across and, and how to deal with them. And that can lead to a lot of frustration and anxiety, disillusionment. Um, so the aim, for the, the aim of the book then is to save them time in terms of trial and error and advise them on how, on how to deal with those issues so that they are not later on um, frustrated, anxious, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and I mean, it's going down really well, isn't it? So obviously I'm seeing a lot of people who are reading the book on their summer holidays. And yes. as you know, and, and listeners will know, I'm a huge fan of reading education books on your summer holidays. I know there's people out there that say, well, you know, you need to get a life or that's sad or all that. But th these are the best times to read them, aren't they? And, and obviously your book, especially with new entrants to the profession, seems to be going on extremely well, exactly for what you just talked about there in terms of the advice and the saving the years of trial and error kind of doing it yourself. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. Okay, so we're going to go through some of the chapters. We're obviously going to leave listeners wanting more because we always do that on Nailers Natter, don't we? But we are going to talk about each of the chapters in turn or parts of the chapters. So the first one we're going to get to uh, is the curriculum. So you mentioned that, obviously, in the introduction. So mm. what do you see are the problems with the curriculum and how can the listener make it work for them? Okay, so I've mentioned a couple of problems which are often mentioned by teachers. And the first one would be that, it's, that it's, it can be quite narrow in the sense that what, what you are teaching is very prescribed to you, very heavily prescribed to you. Um, and that can be lead to lack of engagement from the pupils. Another issue would be that the, the curriculum tends to, there's a greater focus on cognitive skills over non-cognitive skills. But non-cognitive skills, are you there, Phil? Yeah, man. Okay, sorry, it just, uh, it just blowed out, sorry. Non-cognitive skills, um, are also very big predictors of life success, and not just in not just in academia either. Um, so the way we would overcome a lot of these, at least in terms of in terms of the curriculum being too narrow, I've kind of advised on how to <clears throat> how to go on a controlled tangent. So how to say tell a story to your class, how to make the subject matter more relevant to them in the moment in their current situation in their lives. And in terms of the um, development of non-cognitive skills, I've given advice on specific lesson plans, um, which would passively develop non-cognitive skills, skills like perseverance, um, determination, group work, communication, collaboration, et cetera, et cetera. So they're kind of developed passively rather than actively. And if you inject those in at appropriate times, then the, your pupils will make the most from the system, get the most out of the system. Definitely. And, and you talk about that in the chapter, don't you, about you're extremely passionate about that holistic development of children and then also in society at large as well. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's not just about, okay, I mean, me personally, I would want my pupils to attribute other, not just academic success to myself. I would want them to be lifelong uh, learners successful in other areas of life too which they can attribute some of which to me definitely 
Definitely. Okay, so uh, if we go and talk about something else that, um, obviously, you know, I, I still do teach. I, I bang on about this almost every single week. You know, I, I have one class, and you think, you know, I'm one of those SLT people. You know, he's got he's got one class, and he's always complaining about it. But uh, he's got he has still got one class. He teaches two hours a week. I like, know. Oh my I know. God, I can't believe I've got so much marking to do. <laughs> Yeah. It's a catch. That is a, that's an interesting discussion to go off on a tangent. That's a catch twenty two, isn't it? Because you know, if you don't teach as SLT, then obviously there's there's problems with that. You don't understand. You haven't got. Well, I mean, first and foremost, you enjoy it, don't you? That's the reason why you do it in the first place, and that's the reason why we got to the hopefully got to the positions that we're in because we did enjoy the teaching part of it. So you do that, but then you, you're kind of stuck in. Well, if you don't, then obviously people are going to say, well, you don't really understand what it's like as a teacher. You don't understand the life of the classroom practitioner. But if you do, and they say, well, it's all right for you. You've only got year 11 top sets or whatever it is once a week. So it's quite an interesting <laughs> discussion. But the reason I'm meandering around to this listener is because there's a really interesting section in Omar's book, which is about overcoming pupil apathy. And that's certainly something when, you know, the poor, poor students that have me as a teacher, you know, you're going you're gonna to need, I'm going to need something to overcome their apathy when they see me walking in through the door, let me tell you. So tell us a little bit more about that. Okay, so pupil apathy, I mean, that's something which a new teacher is almost shocked by much of the time, because a lot of the time, us as teachers and just general university graduates, we were kind of naturally inclined to engage with lessons, to work hard, to revise, etc., etc. Not all of us, absolutely not all of us, but a lot of us. So when we see kids who are disengaged, it's kind of like, what's going on here? I try so hard for you. You're not trying hard for me. It's, you know, and don't, don't you care about your future? All those things. And it's just like, I didn't see that coming, you know, and it can really take its toll if, if it's not something that, that you're aware of. Um, so, I've, I mean, in terms of getting around it, I've talked about this idea of grit, um, which you may remember, you may remember from a long time ago, Angela Lee Duckworth, which, which she describes it as sustained persistence over a long period of time. And she said that was the factor that in a lot of cases overcame socioeconomic disadvantage too. So the kids who were the most successful, they, they had that uh, quality. So I've given teachers advice on how to encourage grit in the classroom. Two of the things I've mentioned is, are you have to let them struggle through a difficult task. I think what happens a lot of the time is we as teachers, because we see our jobs um, as we see ourselves as people who need to be there to help. And we're right, we do need to be there to help. But at the same time, if we're kind of jumping in too quickly, because the kids will often say, I don't get it, I don't get it. And we'll run right over and say, okay, this is it. It's like, well, do you know what? You have to try that first. They have to suffer through that time. I say suffer, you know what I mean, though. They, 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 we have to let them struggle. And that would develop grids and therefore help to overcome pupil apathy. So another uh, other advice I've given on how to kind of encourage grit in the classroom is have a list of forbidden phrases. Um, and I actually got this from Sophie B, Sophie Bartlett. She's also on Twitter. Um, for example, forbid your pupils from saying, I don't get it. You, you, and and the, the, there's a whole list of them. You know, so I don't get it. I don't get it is not a question. You have to ask questions, encourage them to ask questions about the question rather than just say, well, I don't get it. I don't understand, etc., etc. And also something else that can overcome pupil apathy is if the teacher is, is inspirational. Now there's a lot of inspirational teachers. I mean, and you will, <clears throat> it will still be the case that some pupils are still apathetic 
So it's not all down to the teacher. Well, you're not inspirational. It's your fault. Your pupils don't want to learn. That's not what we're saying. But you can do a lot as, as the teacher. Um, and one way to be inspirational would be to show a lot of passion for your subject. Okay, so be overtly passionate. I mean, there's a lot of discuss a lot of discussion you'll see in the Twitter world about displays that we shouldn't spend time doing all this work and it doesn't make a difference. It might not make a direct difference, but I believe it does make a difference because that passion hopefully will rub off onto your pupils. Um, another way is to prioritize effectively. So, I, in my experience, a lot of kids let's say they did a test which you really, really kind of psyched them up for. Okay, so this is a really important test. I want everybody to do well. If you have that test ready ready and marked for the next lesson, that is something they'll look up to from you as a teacher. So every now and again, you know what to tell them, say, look, I want to see, I want to see you doing well. I want to know how you did. I didn't want to wait till next week to mark it. Okay. Nailers, Natter, just talking to teachers. Definitely. And I mean, if you talk about about your passion, and you, I mean, obviously you're very passionate about teaching as a whole, but obviously about your subject as well. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. And we may get to this later on, might we, in terms of the uh, the TikTok videos from your <laughs> lab, which are just absolutely, I mean, in, inspirational. And I'll just chuckle away. I, I'm going on a side tangent here, Omar, but the, the no, one about the, the photocopier, it's just, <laughs> it was just priceless. I just thought, oh, it's just so true, so true. But we maybe yeah. we'll come, we'll touch on that later. We will, we will. Well, speaking of paper, that was a great segue, wasn't it? From, uh, you know, photocopiers, paper into paperwork. And and this is what I like about the book. And we talked about it before in terms of, you know, saving um, new teachers all the time and and, and effort into kind of trial and error. And something around paperwork, you don't realise it. And obviously, you know, listeners will know. And we're talking about maybe recording a video, aren't we, Omar, later on. So people will see how old I am. But, you know, it's a yeah. long time since I started teaching, as we as we regularly say. But, you know, you still remember how shocked you were by the amount and variety of paperwork that's required. And I love that chapter that you talk about with paperwork. So tell us a little bit about what paperwork is still involved with teaching and how can a listener make the paperwork for them? So, I mean, what is commonly referred to as paperwork, I mean bureaucracy. I've used those two kind of synonymously, you know. Um, so first off, it would be the lesson observations. So I would see that as, as bureaucratic in nature. Um, and in terms of getting through those, I think a new teacher has to remember that lesson observations, they are developmental, but they are but you are also being assessed. Okay, so as an NQT, for example, your observation will not be treated in the same way as it would as a PGC, where it's a kind of, it's very developmental at least in the early stages of the PGC. So in the NQT year, it's it's very much, okay, it's developmental a little bit, but you are also being judged. And it's important to remember that. Um, and the way to kind of do your best, what I, what I advise is to plan in detail. So have a really very detailed lesson plan. Um, for the reason being, it's good for the observer to see your thoughts and it helps you to plan your own thoughts too. Sometimes when you, when you put it in writing and it's all there in front of you to follow a logical sequence, et cetera, et cetera. It can also serve as a backup. Like if your lesson that goes wrong, the first question that's going to be asked is, well, what was your plan? You say, well, it's right here. You know, some people might not agree with my logic there, but that, that it is what it is. Um, also, paperwork, so book scrutinies. I mean, I've mentioned those in the unofficial teacher's manual as well, actually, but I did. I glossed over them here too. 
Um, and that is to anything in a book scrutiny, anything in your books, make it obvious. So if you've got, um, let's say you did some assessed task on a worksheet and the worksheet is stuck in the book, but the kids folded up the sheet 20 times and then stuck it in. It's like, well, <laughs> don't hide your marking, have it right there. You know, train your kids to not do that, you know, to have it, to have it kind of visible. Um, the other one would be, <clears throat> would be performance management. So the target system, numerical targets, teaching targets, etc. The general guidance I've given is that it, obviously if it's a numerical target and you and that's kind of dictated to you, then you don't really have much leeway in it. But if it's a if it's a if it's a target which is not numerical and it involves you doing something, then what I've advised is that you pick something that you are already doing. Okay. Now, that's not me saying, okay, well, you're not going to develop then if you just pick things you're already doing. No, there's many ways a teacher can develop. I mean, the idea is that you get through your performance management. Okay, so if you pick something you're already doing, do it, carry on doing it, but do it better. You know, so pick, pick something you're confident in. Okay, this is not saying we, we, that you don't take risks, etc. you know, and you kind of just stay stagnant. That's not what I mean. There's many ways a teacher can improve. Okay, but but where your performance management is concerned, you are better off playing safe. And also, because it is very target driven, um, so evidence will be asked for, and evidence is more important when you've not met a target. Okay, so let's say a target was eighty nine percent A to uh, not A to C. I was going to say seven to nine for your top set group and you only get 65, the first question that's going to be asked is, well, what did you do to try and ensure that you would get that target? Okay, so then you can say, okay, well, I did this, 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 and have it all ready. And this is the other thing is that, because obviously I'm not trying to scare people, a lot of the schools will not necessarily fail you, in fact, they probably won't actually, for not getting one target, you know. A lot of them will say, well, actually, you know what, you got the other two, and you did X, Y, Z for this one, it's fine. Okay, so it's all about kind of just having that in your mind and, and keeping evidence as you go along. Yeah, and it's really useful. I mean, you mentioned about uh, book looks and lesson observations there. And one one sentence that I like, Omar, and, it, and it's your writing style, and this is what gets you a lot of readers and a lot of you know credit on, on social media and things like that, is that you, you kind of tell it as it is and talk yeah. about it from the perspective of, of the classroom teacher. And you've you've got one section that I've highlighted here, you know, do as you're told, but not always. And I thought, yeah, <laughs> I know what you mean there. And if, if you don't mind me reading your own work back to you, there's one particular sentence that I enjoyed on that, which says... Savvy teachers will do as their SLT ask, but will happily turn away from the guidelines if necessity dictates otherwise. When it comes to observation, then the kids will be at least familiar with the prescribed format and activities, so the lesson will be successful. And I kind of think that's reassuring, isn't it, for, for new teachers to kind of know that you can do that. You don't have to slavishly follow exactly what you're being told to do. And, and this is what happens because a lot of schools can be very prescriptive in what they what they want in a lesson. Like literally this for two minutes, this for five, and then this, 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 this. And you're like, well, how am I going to make this content fit that? People doing coursework subjects, they're having a constant nightmare because there are lessons where they're just getting on with the coursework, you know, and what's wrong with that, you know? And then it could just be just generally <laughs> a headache. Sorry, I'm trying to make sure I don't say anything inappropriate. It's just, it's just a headache, an unnecessary headache right there. So as long as you've done what you've been asked to before, and when it comes to the observation, it won't be a surprise, you know? 
so yeah do as you do do, do as you're told but not always <laughs> great advice listener great advice okay now another thorny issue is data and obviously we're recording this on a level results day and we've got gcse results day to come up uh, fairly mm-hmm. shortly so in terms of data so data can be a source of stress for pupils and for teachers as we kind of alluded to there so what kinds of data do teachers have to work with and how can they manage this oh so current grades this yes. is the one isn't it what grade are they working at at the moment if you ask five teachers in the same school what a current grade is, I bet you you will get five different answers. So does that mean if they did the exam right now? Okay, well, we've only taught six weeks of content, so they'd fail the exam, right? Because <laughs> they don't know anything in September, in October, half term, whatever it is. Or is it, or is it if they carried on making the same effort, then what grade would they get? Okay, well, the topics get harder. What are they going to do then? You get what I mean, Phil. I mean, it's really like, it, it's very elusive, isn't it? A current oh, I grade, do. And you, you know. think about science, for example, you know, current grade in what? Current grade in biology, chemistry, physics, which module, which section, which part? Exactly. hundred um, percent. Then to add to that, then there's target grades, which I think are the worst thing ever. Because um, they can, I mean, the teacher's measured by the target grade as well, which that's a, that's a whole other set of problems. But for the pupil, they can limit success too. So they can make them, so if they, if they, they can almost be content with less. So let's say their target is a six or whatever, but the kid's blatantly capable of more. It's like, well, well the kid's going to be there. Well, okay, I've got my six done, you know, and it can go the other way too. It's like some kids are not capable of a seven or a nine or whatever. And they're constantly being told they're underachieving. Sometimes for years in the secondary school, they're constantly coming up. Oh, they're under. And you'll notice in the book I put underachieving in inverted commas throughout, because ha, ha, who decides that? And that can be really demoralizing for them. Yeah, definitely. And and the one you talked about there is that I like. You've called that person Fred, haven't you? Fred is underachieving uh, quite a lot in the section here, and you kind of yeah, go yeah, through Fred. a particular section yeah. there. It's really. Again, it's really rooted in the classroom, isn't it? The, the people who are reading this book will kind of will recognize that scenario, won't they? No, absolutely. Um, and in terms of kind of managing what we just talked about, because it can be quite stressful for the teacher, um, especially, I mean, if, if you're under pressure to get targets and the kids don't care about those targets, then obviously, you know, it's, it's a difficult situation to be in. And I think the key thing is to remember to absorb the pressure, as in don't deflect that pressure or at least not in a negative way onto your students, because a lot of the, uh, some of them can deflect, will deflect that pressure right back. Because I've known um, cases where, so the teachers putting the pupil under pressure, I put pressure in inverted commas again while we're talking now. Yeah. Um, and the kid will complain to the school. Uh, the kid's mum will complain to the school, or dad will complain to the school, saying, "Well, actually, this teacher's not teaching properly, and you're stressing out my kid." They will literally just push it right back. So there's there's that to be aware of. It depends what kind of school you work at, really. Um, yeah, we talked about it be, uh, being demoralizing for the pupils too. And I think for for a ki- for a kids who are not getting their targets, who are way off, and for kids full stop, uh, the, the general kind of message we've got to give them is that their target should be to do their best. The numerical target is not their target. Their target should be to do their best. And once they've done that, it's okay. Like I've got an issue with kids um, 
underachieving for years, and they are trying, and we're constantly telling them they're off target. So, well, your target's to do your best. Do your best. That's good enough. Absolutely. And great advice, especially, like I said, especially today. Yeah. Okay, now this the, we're getting to my favorite chapters. I mean, obviously, I love the book, and I, I gave it a glowing reference, and, and thank you for uh, asking me to do that. So on the back cover of the book, um, I, I get my name in light, don't I? Finally, on the back cover here, you know, <laughs> you right out. So, you know, thank you for that. So, obviously, I love the book. And just a reminder, if anyone's kind of picked it up halfway, it's Teaching for Realists, Making the Education System Work for You and Your Pupils. And we're going to delve into um, the old word, Omar, now, aren't we? Yeah, the Ofsted word. Oh, <laughs> on, on your summer holidays as well, listener. You want to know about Ofsted. Okay, so... I mean, obviously, you know, the book has lots of anecdotes in there. And, you know, I really, really chuckled from an SLT perspective about the section on Ofsted and about the SLT frenzy section in particular. Um, <laughs> I thought was was, was unnervingly <laughs> accurate there, let me tell you. So uh, in, in that section, so tell us a little bit about that, about how you could survive against the, the odds um, with Ofsted. And could you outline the problems with Ofsted and suggest how the listeners can survive an inspection? Yeah, I think me and you have been in the game a similar amount of time. Yeah. If you were looking down the camera, listener, you wouldn't know that. You'd think, you know, you know. (laughs) Omar's weathering it much better than I am, let me tell you that. (laughs) You're too kind, man, honestly. Oh, God. So you'll remember when um, any teacher that was teaching from the front, quote unquote, that was condemned by every SLT. Oh, no, no, you can't teach from the front. They have to be in little groups collaborating. And, 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 okay. Um, and, and they almost try to kind of eradicate that. You know, no teaching from the front. This is a bad thing. Then they released a myths document later on saying, we don't favor any specific teaching method or marking method. That's to be decided by the school. It's like, well, hang on a second. Why did every SLT in the country think that teaching from the front was a bad thing then? Where did they get that from? They got it from them. You know, same thing with triple marking. A lot of schools uh, switched to triple marking. And, you know, spending 15 hours a week, I'm not going to get into the details of triple marking, just spending a long time doing that. Then again, in their MIFS document, as I said, they said, oh, no, we marking policies to be decided by the school. We don't favor any, any, any specific one. It's like, well, why was everybody doing that then? There's been some confusion somewhere. I mean, I don't believe every head teacher got it wrong that they had to rele- release a myths document. What they should have said is, we gave you bad, in- bad information, you know. We shouldn't have said that. We're sorry, you know, but, but that's not what they're going to do. Um, so there is this perpetual confusion. There was also, a while back, there was an inset which I attended myself. It was actually quite popular. You may have heard of it. It's called um, When the Door Handle Turns. Okay. So that was that was an inset to tell you exactly what to do when an inspector comes in. Okay. So not, oh, not how to teach good lessons, not how to get your pupils to reach their full potential, you know, all the things we should be doing. When the door handle turns. So exactly what to do. And they need to see rapid progress in X amount of time. So literally, schools up and down the country were practicing what to do when Ofsted come in. What a waste of time, you know? And if you didn't do that as well, because there were people who were getting unsatisfactories, I remember this, um, for doing the register when Ofsted were there. But you didn't review your learning objectives. So what? You've only been here three weeks. Honestly, it was was absolutely horrible. Um, 
And of course, th- th- they have a big results focus, which from that, they end up creating their own problem. With, like, for example, um, in primary schools, um, it still happens now and, and historically, where the, where the curriculum gets very narrowed in year six. Um, very little science being done, for example, because the focus is on English and maths. And why is the focus on English and maths? Because of the SATs. Because schools are judged by their SATs results. Okay. And then they turn around and say, well, actually, you're not, they're they're condemning schools for narrowing their curriculum. It's like, well, we narrowed it because of you, you know? So they they, they end up creating their own problems. And the other thing in secondary schools, when they're doing, um, they don't do this anymore, but historically, multiple resets to make sure you get your um, the five grade C's. So starting the the exam in year nine, then again in year 10, then again in year 11, mm-hmm. oh, or then again in year 10. Okay, grade C achieved for maths. We can forget about maths now because we've reached that minimum. The kid probably could have got an A or a B or something, but they stopped it there because, okay, let's use year 11 to, to, to focus on other subjects because we've reached the minimum. Now, all of these are our core. These are Ofsted created problems. And what we said about the SLT's frenzy. Oh, goodness, yes. God. I mean, that school, the one that took their all their naughty, quote-unquote, kids to Alton Towers for the day and got caught, you know? Yes, I remember. Okay. The other ones who, who paid kids £100 to stay at home, there, there, there's a lot. I mean, that's just that bit. I mean, SLTs don't go around doing this. These are, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, you know, say, oh, SLTs are all crooked. That's not what we're saying. And that's quite extreme. But, but a lot of the time, there will be a frenzy in the sense that Okay, the number of learning walks goes right up. And it will be what annoys me the most, or has annoyed me the most in the past, where it's like, when offset come in, they're going to want, when offset come in, they're going to, when offset come in, they're going to, everything starts with that. Mm. I mean, one of the great things when I was uh, doing the research school was that we got time to kind of step away for a few days a week. So a couple of days a week would be out of the classroom, we'd be kind of running courses and things like that. But it gives an opportunity to kind of speak to teachers, speak to leaders and find out a little bit more about that. And the number of lethal mutations and things like that that have come from people reading Ofsted guidance. Uh, and, you know, obviously teachers are busy, leaders are busy. You know, they don't have time to read the amount of documents that come out all the time. But, you know, a little bit of information in that sense can be quite dangerous, can't it? Because you take one thing in isolation and then say, right, that is what we're going to have to do. And then we focus on that. And you're absolutely right. You know, you think we're, we're going to release this pretty quickly. So listeners are going to be getting ready for, you know, inset days. And I bet you, you count how many times on an inset day the word Ofsted will be mentioned. And this is what we'll be looking for. And this is the year that we're going to do X, Y, Z because we've seen a little bit of guidance on it. We think that's, and it's, I'm not being as, as you weren't, you know, we're not trying to bash people. We're just trying to inform people. And that's what you do with the book. Because if you're a new teacher, it can be quite, quite difficult for you to understand what is required of you when an inspection takes place. And you've kind of taught them through step by step and said, this is what you can expect. And after that, you know, even I came away reassured and I've been through goodness knows how many officer inspections over 22 years. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I mean, when I've described the inspection process, I've I've been general because obviously that's something that changes, but there's certain things which stay the same the whole time. Like, for example, if you're being offsteaded in that year, on September the 3rd or 2nd or whatever, the head teacher will say it then, this is an offsted year. I mean, that you can guarantee. Then the two days before or whatever, you'll get an email saying everybody in the hold at the end of the day. Yeah. Okay, And then, then that's when you know offset are coming tomorrow. So things like that are general. 
Um, there is a lot of focus on the curriculum at the moment. I actually didn't go into detail on that in the book for the reason being because I wanted the book to kind of last over time because if they then change that, mm. then you know it, it, it becomes less relevant. But there's certain things which are always going to be, like, for example, they will always do lesson drop-ins uh, and observations, to which I've said, make sure your lessons are planned to the same extent that you would plan them for, a, for an observation. For your normal um, performance management observation, you plan them to that extent. Even if the head teacher says, because a lot of the time, because um, of the unions and stuff, they've said, we actually don't require lesson plans. So you don't have to you don't have to have a a, a written le lesson plan, but I've advised that staff do so anyway. I've advised the staff do so anyway. It's a good fallback for you in case anything doesn't go your way. And I do genuinely believe that. I don't, I'm not trying to create work for people though, you know. <laughs> but but I do I do believe that if anything doesn't go your way, you say, well, you know what? I tried, okay. And this is what I was going to do. This is what, and at least there will be more of a valid discussion after the observation. So yeah, I love that about the, the kids' reaction to you know. You talk about behaviour, and and we're going to come to behaviour in a minute. But you talk about that idea that you know you don't have to do anything differently if you've got you know the behaviour and got those good relationships already. Then can they continue with that? And if something does happen, then then can kind of continue to deal with it as you normally would deal with it. But I like yes. the bit at the end about. You know, <laughs> you'll have a good laugh with the class as make fun of you as soon as the inspector leaves. And I thought, yeah, that that's definitely true, isn't it? Oh you know? God, it totally is. It totally is. I mean, because a lot of, I mean, at least in secondary schools, a lot of teachers that at the moment they say Ofsted, you're going to think, right, I've got year nine, period three, the period four that day. There is no way they're going to behave, and oh my God, and that will, that will really preoccupy you. Mm -hmm. You know, because you don't want a class misbehaving with somebody watching too. There's no worse feeling. You know. But what you'll notice is a lot of the time, kids actually don't misbehave. They actually don't. When somebody comes in from outside, somebody who's important, most of the time, I say most because it's never all of the time, they, they will actually behave a lot better. Um, and if you fear that they won't, then the thing is to speak to somebody in advance. You've got to say, look, I've got these three kids or whatever, and I know they're going to be hell-bent on ruining the inspection because for xyz just tell somebody in advance make sure you to make sure you do something about it in advance don't just let it go through no absolutely right yeah. so segueing nicely into behavior now obviously you've written quite a lot about behavior and you, and you obviously talk quite a lot about behavior as well so what do you see um the, the common issues with behavior policies okay so the policy itself okay so most policy most schools use some version of the consequence system where it's like warning one, warning two, uh, detention. Carry on misbehaving after that, sent out of the room, isolation, etc. etc. So it's the policy, the policy itself, that there's no real issue with it. I, I think they are effective policies when they are managed correctly. The problem, if you will, is that often new teachers are kind of how can I say this? They're not punished necessarily, but, but it gets flagged up that they are overusing the behavior system. So they'll be setting a lot of detentions, which is okay for a bit. It's okay for a bit when you're, when you're trying to establish yourself. But relying on detentions is something that will be flagged up in a school. Okay. 
So the idea is that you use the behavior policy as a fallback. So you you, you set sanctions, etc. When when you've done everything you would normally do, and that and that doesn't work, so it's only a fallback. Otherwise, you you do risk being seen as a weak teacher, and that can be problematic. Um, and and this is the thing. I mean, a lot of so a new teacher would say, "Well, I'm being I'm doing what I've been trained to do," and that is what they say at most behavior training courses. Right? So give one give a clear warning, put the name on the board. Give another clear warning, put the name on the board. Okay. So what I'm saying is, even if you can avoid even giving one, there are ways to avoid even giving one. You know, and then you won't get flagged up as people won't call you to their office saying, "Oh, you know, so what? Uh, what do you think you can do differently? I mean, do you think you're setting too many? Well, so and so doesn't. Then you'll get that one teacher. Well, they behave in my lessons. Like, come on, man. You know, <laughs> I'm only laughing because, uh, and again, shameless, shameless plug for own book here. I've got a scenario where that happened very, very early on. So I'm, I, I mean, I don't want. It's not about me this particular interview, but that that phrase of all phrases is the worst thing to hear. I remember as an NQT going to see the deputy head and you know the deputy head was extremely nice person and well-meaning and didn't understand the impact of that phrase but you know oh i can't understand why you've got a problem with xyz you know oh they all work well for me yeah well brilliant (laughs) yeah exactly. thank you for that that's really helped i mean there's just so many reasons why that might be the case um like in secondary for example you don't always they'll say well he or she behaves well in my lesson it's like well who are they with in your lesson which other kids are they? You know, kids bounce off each other. You know, kids have different levels of interest in different subjects. There's there's literally multiple reasons for that. And some teachers don't have as high of standards for behavior either. Not that I'm saying anybody who says, well, they behave in my lesson has low standards, but you understand what I mean. There's, the, the, there's difference. Um, like I like pin drop silence most of the time if they're working. But some teachers don't mind a bit of talking. Then you say, well, they behave in my lesson, but you're letting them talk. You know what I mean? It's like there's, there's so many factors involved in that, you know. So I talked about how to, how to de-escalate so that it doesn't get to the point of ascension. Okay, so I've mentioned the way you walk, the way you talk, um, the way you move around your room, everything, like the subtle things, which you pick up on when you observe a teacher um, after so many years of teaching. Um, one thing I recommend is having a quick word. I call it a quick word. Right, so I'll say to you, Phil, can you stand outside for a minute? No, you're not in trouble. I just want to speak to you. Then you speak to the kids, say, look, you're forcing me to give you his attention. All right, so I'm only going to say this once. And then when you take away the audience, they come back in and hopefully behave differently. Nailers, natter, just talking to teachers. Yeah, and I mean, in terms of that, that's what I like about this, that, you know, there's lots of books been written about behavior and lots of them have got a lot of theory and a lot of, you know, kind of evidence behind that. And that's good and that's great. But then if you want something that's going to give you a very, very, you know, direct way to kind of improve behavior in your classroom, especially, like I said, if you're reading this before going back in September or before starting your first job in September, these are really kind of pragmatic bits of advice that, that it's taken us, hasn't it, Omar, many years to kind of realize work. You know, things like you said there, you teach your body language, prioritizing behavior, but about nipping it in the bud, the quick word, the phone call home. You know, the yes. phone call home, really, really powerful. And, you know, any meeting that you can have as well. Absolutely. The phone call home. And this is, I, do you know what? I think I made my first phone call home after about three years of teaching. I was that just terrified of it. 
get out of bed because I think I'm from that generation which doesn't like talking on the phone, but yeah. I'm used to it now. It's all good. But um, but no, it can make such a difference. It can make such a difference. And and you, this is the thing because you don't have to go through the headache of setting a detention because that usually involves paperwork in itself. You have to chase it up. You have to fill out the form. You've got to tell the kid that then they don't turn up. Then you've got to set another one. And then, honestly, it's, it's just if you can avoid it, avoid it. You know, I'd say unless there's something because I don't want to give bad advice either, um, because there's some schools which will say you must set a detention for this incorrect uniform, for example, in which case you have to do what your SLT say. Don't do what I say then. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? If they say, if they say, right, kids with five earrings in one ear, you've got to give them detention, then that's exactly what you do. Don't do a phone call home then. Yeah. I know just that just that quick chat can save you a lot of time. And this is the other thing, is just to keep ringing as well. Mm. I wouldn't no. stop at one. Like if they do it again, then you think, well, I've I rang before. No, ring again. Yeah. There's I no mean, harm in that. There's no harm in that at all. No. Mediation is good too. Um, like if you've if you've got a kid who's just like repeatedly getting sent out and they're just completely defiant, have a meeting with them and and the pastoral leads or the head of year or whatever or whoever and you can say like look i'm trying to get along with you you know i can see that you've got some good qualities you know just your friends seem to respect you you're a lively character we need to see we need to see some of those used in the right way otherwise i'm going to be forced to send you out not i mean that's mediation i don't mean restorative conversation i don't mean that how do you feel what do you think happened I don't mean that. I mean, mediation's different. Hmm. No, definitely. And I mean, in terms of the the behavior policy you've talked about there, and quite often behavior policies, and I'm guilty of this, and I've said it previously, you know, can be extremely long documents, can't they? They go on for page after page after page. But again, this is why this book is so good, because you've given some real advice, hence teaching for realists. So in terms of when meeting a class for the first time, I really like that, because, you know, those things are kind of counterintuitive to those of us that have been doing it for a long time. But it's not always obvious, is it? So again, if you're picking up this book and you're ready to start in September, seating plan, you know, talking about the rules and and making sure that they're very clear, both, you know, from a a science teacher point of view, perhaps, you know, in terms of lab rules, but also in terms of classroom rules for your classroom that work within the policy. Um, So they're they're really interesting and really useful as well. Definitely, definitely. I mean, I think when you see a class for the, so to anybody who's listening who's starting in September, when you see a class for the first time, you need to exercise as much control as possible over that. So I know some some teachers will put the the seating plan on the on the on the projector and say, right guys, to your seats. I personally would not advise that because then they're then they're doing it independently. I would say, right, I need you, say the name, here. Next to you, I'd like you, you sit here. Because it, the message they get is that you are in control. And I don't mean that in a horrible way, you know. I don't mean that. You're the authority in the room. They have to respect your authority. So the more you can exert your authority on that in that first meeting, the better. The easier it's going to be later on. No, I absolutely agree, and, yeah. and I still and I still do that now. Yeah. No, absolutely. Okay. Right. Let's get into rewards. So um, obviously we've talked about behaviour, but let's now talk about some rewards. So um, what are the problems with rewards, um, and how can the listener use them effectively? I think the main problem with rewards is that they're not, they're almost issued in a very artificial way at schools. Like they have quotas, like 
certain kids, not certain kids rather, but there has to be certain certain rewards for certain things. Um, and often they're kind of, you're kind of choosing somebody because you have to. Um, like, for example, if you've got a certain amount of tokens, you know, reward tokens, whatever they call them at, at, at that school, at your school, you often have to give a certain amount every lesson. In which case, you're literally finding things to reward which are not worthy of the reward, which for me at least devalues the reward. That's one of the problems. So just the, the way in which it's done. And I also think that teachers are encouraged to reward things which I consider basic. Mm. You know, like the basic stuff. People who are complying with basic behavior rules, for example, or have just, you know, shown up in the lessons, like reward well done a second. No. I don't think that um, to make the rewards more effective, generally speaking, it's what you say to the kid when you issue the reward too. And because it's the words that stick, it's not the token or whatever it is you give them. So you can say, look, you know, if you keep this up, well done, excellent work. If you keep this up, you're going to have a lot of success later on in life. You know, that is something that would stick with them. You're going to get really far in life rather than just putting it on the system. Here you go. Done. Absolutely. I mean, generally speaking, I've said don't reward good behavior. There's very few circumstances, very few, in which it's okay to reward good behavior. Because good behavior is the expectation. Because what happens is, if you start rewarding good behavior, your behavior will get worse. Kids' behavior will get worse. Oh, we were good last lesson. Like if you say, okay, like for example, and I made this mistake, not just me, loads of people have made this mistake. Uh, a naughty class were good. Okay, they were really good. You rewarded them. And they say, okay, can we have five minutes free time? Fine, have five minutes free time, which, by the way, is the worst thing you can give to kids. <laughs> let me just say, okay. And you give them that free time. The next time, what do you have to do next time? Do you give them 10 minutes free time? At what point are you just, you, you understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. You know? And then what will happen is, okay, well, oh, no, I'm not going to give you five minutes free time this time. Well, fine, we won't behave then. And that is common. Mm. Good behavior should be the expectation. And you shouldn't entertain kids into into behaving too. And that's just on a side note. I know we weren't talking about that. But, yeah, so no, I, I, generally speaking, I don't believe in rewarding basics, even attendance. Yeah. I mean, again, there's very few circumstances. There are circumstances in which you should award attendance because some some pupils, for various reasons, will struggle to come to school. You know, and in those cases, yes. But when it's pure laziness, no, obviously not. No, and what you talk about again there is you talked about the power of a phone call home from a behaviour point of view, but you also talk about the, the power of kind of recognition if it's face to face with a student, you know. For, for whatever they've done that particular lesson, but also that phone call home. And you must be able to remember, and I can remember examples of, you know, ringing home for us and they, they, they kind of answer the phone with, oh, what's she done now? Oh, what's she yeah. done now? And what they've done now? And you just think, no, no, actually, I'm just ringing to say they've produced a, an excellent piece of work in the biology lesson. And you can think it's so much better than sending them home with a, a five pound voucher for McDonald's or whatever it was. Yes. But, but even when you're doing that, they have to have earned it. Mm. They have to have earned it. Like, like for example, um, they've done good work consistently, I would say. That's when you, when you get the reward. Or some big task, then you can ring up and say, do you know what, this is really, really good. But by, in essence, what, what I'm arguing is that rewards have to be earned and not just given out. 
Okay, so what we'll get into now, if we, if you're happy to step in to the uh, the virtual vinyl suite now, Omar, have you got um, a, a choice there? So just before we get into it, this is a section where we kind of find a little bit more about the teacher, about the author, about the person behind the podcast. So as I say every single week, this is named after the office at work, which I share with uh, High Noon, as he is on Twitter, uh, where we actually do do some work, of course. You know, we don't just sit there and listen to records all day. However, occasionally after school, to soothe us, we like to, to get the turntable out and put some uh, 70s vinyl on because we're, we're both getting on a bit now. So um, I guess what I'm asking is, have you got a particular piece of music that either has inspired you throughout your career or something you listen to at the moment and maybe something that's a little story to go along with that as well? Oh. Piece of music that's inspired me. Mm. I mean, my, I've got motivation music. Yeah. I'm not so sure about inspiration music. I've got motivation music. And that that will be by DMX. X gonna give it to ya. <laughs> do you know it? Uh, well, I've, I'm sure I've heard yeah. it, but uh, <laughs> I'd have to go and do some research to find that that's one. I'm not sure that's in my vinyl back catalogue or more, but it, I'm sure I can find it. No, definitely. And that's something that you kind of listen to when you're, what, when you're doing one of your many runs? Uh, runs before an observation, um, before Ofsted anything yeah, that that that's kind of my motivation song excellent right well if, hopefully i found it so it'll seamlessly edit into this part of the podcast there it goes great well we've not had that one before omar so that's a fantastic okay. choice Right, just to wrap it up, last uh, little bit of the podcast now. So obviously we've talked about the book all the way through the podcast. So that is Teaching for Realists, Making the Education System Work for You and Your Pupils. It's a Bloomsbury book. It's available everywhere. Can you just tell us a little bit uh, more about where people can get in touch with you, Omar? So things like your social media. I know that obviously you're on Twitter, but any other platforms that you've got, where listeners can get the the book from, obviously, um, as well. And anything that you're doing in terms of events or speaking engagements or promotional materials for the book as well. Okay, so I tweet at uh, Teacher's Manual at Unofficial OA. I'm also on Insta, the Unofficial Teacher's Manual. Um, I have a Facebook page as well. Um, again, the Unofficial Teacher's Manual. Book can be found. Uh, so first two books, um, the Unofficial Teacher's Manual and Bad School Leadership and What to Do About It, they can only be found on Amazon. Um, Teaching for Realists, which is my most recent book, that can be found on Amazon as well. That seems to be the most popular place that people buy it from but it's also at places like uh waterstone yeah it's at waterstones and wh smith that i know of um and it's going to be in a couple of a couple of other places later on uh what, uh, what was your other question phil sorry just in terms of have you got anything because obviously things are getting he says hesitates to say slightly more back to normal so have you got any kind of speaking engagements are you going to be at any conferences are you going to be doing anything online um, no i'm not actually that's i don't really I don't tend to do that, actually. I do the podcasts and the writing. Um, mm. No, I, I, I don't have any speaking gigs, actually. Maybe it's something I could do later on in the future. Well, you never know. The well, listener. I teach full-time myself, mm. you know. So anything else, anything else I do is very, um, in ad- well, it's in addition to, to teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, mm-hmm. that's the best kind of place to write from, isn't it? To be, as you said, you know, you're a realist, you're in the classroom, you're living this, you're doing this every day. It's a great book. And like I've said, I've, I've quoted, this is my quoting myself now, 
have got to that level. So Omar's pragmatic self-effacing advice makes it enjoyable to imbibe his years of lived experience. So recommended for realists everywhere. So that was my recommendation for the book. Omar, it's been a pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you so much for, uh, for getting up and speaking to us this morning. Very, very much appreciated. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers.